Well, wonderful song, choir. Thank you for it. In your Bible today, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter number one. And then if you find chapter number one, then quickly go over to chapter 22. And you'll have both of the uh, references today from God's Word. Revelation chapter one and Revelation chapter number 22, please. <clears throat> All right, stand with me, if you will, as we read from God's Word, Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. I want you to notice there is a blessing promised there. Blessed is the person that reads and hears and keeps the words that are written therein. Now, this obviously, the first application would be this is the book of Revelation. But not only is it referring to the book of Revelation, I believe in a broader sense it refers to the entire Bible. And so you can have a blessing if you read it, if you hear it, and if you obey it or keep the things that are written therein. Revelation chapter 22. At the beginning of the book, you have the blessing promised, and at the end of the book, you have it repeated. Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, he said, These sayings are faithful and true, a claim for the accuracy and reliability of Scripture. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. And then another promise of a blessing. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Notice again, the blessing is a result of the prophecies in the book reading them, keeping them, maintaining them. Notice that the emphasis here is upon keeping them, maintaining them, keeping them alive in your heart and keeping them in the sense of obedience to them. Now, not only is there blessings promised, but there's also a warning, in fact, a curse. In Revelation 22 and verse number 18, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, right now, you're hearing and reading, aren't you? I testify to every man that readeth or that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man take away from the words of the book, of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> so the Word of God begins, the book of Revelation specifically, it begins and then it ends with a special blessing upon the people who read it, who hear it, and who keep the things that are written therein. As I began, 
2018, I want to claim that blessing for my life. I want that blessing that's promised here. That, so to have that blessing, I must read it, I must hear it, and I must keep the things that are written therein. I am unashamed. In fact, I'm proud to say I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. I have tried through the years to hone my skills and become a better preacher and teacher of the Word of God. I've made that the main emphasis of my ministry. I used to be a preacher who would look around me and get sermons from events in life and stick some scripture in there when I was first beginning. Through the years, uh, very frankly, I have changed my preaching style, and I've done so deliberately and intentionally. I don't, I'm not quite as bombastic. I don't tell as many jokes because I've learned that nobody ever got saved telling them a funny story. I have learned that God uses his word, that the only thing that he ever promised to use was his word. He didn't promise to ever honor Bill Monroe, but he did promise to honor his word. I've tried to make this a Bible-centered church. One of the greatest compliments I and our church, I think, I've ever heard occurred uh, some months back when a man told me about some men who were talking, and one of them said to the others, well, why don't you go with us to the Florence Baptist Temple? And the guy said, they just are too much into the Bible there. That's just, it's boring to me. All they ever talk about is the Bible. And I said, glory to God. Amen. That's exactly, he got it. Now, whether he, how he responds to it, that's up to him and the Lord. But I'm glad that people recognize that right here in our church, it's all about the Word of God and the Bible. And so I've tried to, I, study is the priority of my life. And I brush aside other things, and I get in my books, and I get my Bibles out, and I begin to study God's Word. I know that even the best plans that I may have, I may look at the congregation and say, you know, I need to preach on this. And sometimes I do that. But I also have found out I can preach the Word of God, and even though I don't know a thing going on in someone's life, God will use His Word, and it will become transformative and life-changing to them. I love the Bible. I've tried to have a Bible-centered ministry I want you to love the Bible. I want you to evaluate preachers. I want you to measure churches. I want you to evaluate the events of life according to the Bible. That's the correct way to do it for a believer. You know, it's not what you and I see and think about things that's true. It's what God's Word says about things that's true. And I want you to become that kind of Bible-focused Christian. So as I begin this new year again, I want to claim that blessing upon my life. The greatest tribute I think I've ever heard to the, uh, uh, directed towards Scripture is one found in the front of every Gideon Bible. If you ever stay in a hotel room, of course, 
if the hotel will permit them, they put the Gideon Bible there. When I was a kid in school, the Gideons came around and gave people a New Testament when you were in the fifth or sixth grade, somewhere along there. And for many years, I had my copy of the Gideon New Testament. It's tragic today that the schools are not allowed to allow to let the Gideons come in and give the Word of God to the children. In the front of each Gideon New Testament is written these words. Listen to them. They're so beautiful and they're so true. I quote, the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill our memory, rule our heart, and guide our feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to us in life. It will be opened at the judgment, and it will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It will reward the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. End of quote. A beautiful, beautiful, and truthful tribute to God's Word. What is the Bible? I asked the question today, and I answer it by saying that the Bible is the Word of God in the words of men. It is the Word of God, but He didn't speak it to us audibly. He chose to reveal it to holy men of old. And those men wrote the Bible through a divine plan of inspiration. The Bible is the book in which God reveals himself. Now, think about that word reveal. To reveal something is to see it opened up and to understand it and to see it. The Bible, in the Bible, God chooses to reveal himself to human, human beings, to men and women. And no matter what languages they speak, what cultures they may be in, the book is a relevant book. God reveals himself. If you want to see God, you must look in the Bible. If you want to know God and know him from an authoritative source, you must know him through the Bible, not through your own ideas, not through what people write about, what other humans have said. God is revealed through his word. If you would know God, then, my friend, you must know the Bible. And the Bible is, of course, the all-time bestseller. 
more copies of the Bible are in existence on the planet today than any other single book. It also is the most loved book on the planet, but right along with that, it's also the most hated book on the planet. And through the years, so many people have done their best to rid the world of the Bible. Your Bible, as you know, and very obviously, is divided into two sections, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The word testament means covenant. So an old covenant agreement that God has with humankind and a new covenant, the new and the one that overrode the first covenant that was established, the new covenant began with the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it's the, the New Testament, the new covenant. It is a library instead of just one book because many different authors wrote the Bible. And so when I hold this book in my hands, I'm literally holding a spiritual library. It's composed of 66 different books, and it's, but yet they all have a unity. They form one book. 39 of those books are in the Old Testament. 27 of those books are in the New Testament. The Old Testament is about uh, three times as long as the New Testament. You can read the New Testament in three or four minutes a day. You could read it through in less than a year. You can read it by September. If you start today and read one chapter a day, you'll be through with the New Testament in one year. Ryan has led our college young people, and many of them have made a commitment to just read the New Testament this year. And that way you would have time to read it very slowly and thoughtfully and prayerfully, and my, the value that that would be to you. Now, on the other hand, many of us take on the challenge of reading the entire Bible in a year, you can do that in about 15 minutes a day. How did the Bible come into being? How, how, why do we have this book? How, what were the circumstances that brought it into existence? <clears throat> First of all, I want you to know that the Bible, the primary author is God, the Holy Spirit, not any man. Now, I'll talk to you about the role of men. But I want you to know, if somebody says to you, who wrote the Bible, I want you to understand that God wrote the Bible. Specifically, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And so the Spirit of God is the ultimate author of the Scripture. Don't ever forget that. When you open your Bible, whether it's to stand with read and, and read with me here at church, or whether you're having your daily Bible reading, or whenever you open a Bible, remember... God wrote the Bible. You don't, first of all, think of human authors, but the Bible, and the Bible makes that very clear. I want to show you three phrases from verses, and for the sake of time, I'll go very quickly, but these three phrases describe the writing of the Bible by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 is very familiar to you. In your King James, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But I made up my own translation here, and by the way, it's very accurate. All Scripture is God-breathed because the word inspiration comes from a Greek word, and it means to breathe out. And so all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture 
was spoken by and breathed out by the Holy Spirit himself to a human author. So first of all, always get it and get it settled in your mind and heart that the Holy Spirit is the author. He breathed it out, just like I'm breathing out as I speak to you this morning. I'm taking in air, pushing it across my vocal cords, forming and shaping with my tongue and lips and teeth and so on, and I speak, and you discern the words. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit of God breathed the Word of God into the hearts and minds of those who were writing it down. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 is another verse I want you to notice. This is how those men wrote the prophecy. The prophecy came not in old times by the will of man. These are not the opinions of the, even the godly men who wrote it down. But holy men of God spoke or spake as they were moved, borne along, controlled, led by the Holy Ghost. See, there's the Holy Spirit, the, again, the divine author. And so the Holy Spirit came to these men, and he told them the very words of the Scripture. And I, I, I want you to really get hold of that. I didn't say the thoughts of the Scripture. He didn't give them some general concept that they would go and then, uh, you know, they would elaborate on the concept and explain it to us. No, no. He gave them the very words of the Scripture. The Holy Spirit told these holy men of God, as they are called. How did he do it? Did he do it audibly? I don't know. How did he do it? Did he guide the pen as they wrote in some supernatural way? Did he just put the thoughts in their mind in the exact way that he wanted it written? The Scripture doesn't really tell us. We know that some of the old prophets did say, God said to me. Do you know your Bible says 2,000 times, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Over 2,000 times appears in the scriptural text. So, if the Bible is not true, by the way, it has 2,000 lies in it because it says 2,000 times plus that God is the one who spoke out the words of Scripture. I'm saying that because I want to boost your confidence in the Scripture because I know if you go to college today to a secular university, it will be torn down in your mind. I know that before you even go to college, in many high schools and even elementary schools now, the Word of God is torn down through the teaching of evolution and many other, many other ways that it's taught. So I want to strengthen your confidence and build your faith in the Word of God and let you know that God made no mistakes. He spoke. He guided the pen. He put the exact words and thoughts in these men's minds, and they wrote it down. Uh, specifically, as he said. A third verse I want to show you is Acts chapter 1 and verse number 16. And the phrase is this, the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke. Now, see, there again you have the Holy Spirit involved as the divine source and author of the Scripture. He speaks to, in this case, David, and in this case, I guess, he spoke directly through words to him. And the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke, and then David wrote down the portions of Scripture that he, of which he was the author, 
the book of Psalms and, and other places in the Scripture where David is quoted. Now, in this library of 66 books, there are 40 different authors who wrote. 40 different men wrote the Scriptures inspired from, originally, from the Holy Spirit of God. If we put 40 people in a room and asked them to address any subject, it wouldn't matter what it was, there would be lots of contradictions, lots of people who would disagree with someone else. I think it would probably be humanly impossible for 40 people to agree on 1,500 and some pages or something. And yet, that's exactly what happened because the Holy Spirit was a real author, and he spoke a consistent truth to 40 different authors. But here's another amazing fact here. Think about 40 people writing, but they weren't all writing in the same room at the same time. These 40 authors were writing over a period of 1,500 years. That would take us from where we are back to the year 500. Can you imagine a 1,500-year span from the time that Moses began writing about 1,400 years before Christ, and the Scripture was being written throughout that period of time up until about 95 A.D. when it was completed, the last page of the book of Revelation, the last book to be written, was completed in about 95 A.D. So from 1,400 years before Christ up until almost 100 years after Christ, 1,500 years, 40 people are writing. They live on three different continents. And so they're coming from very, very different cultural backgrounds. And yet they produce this God-ordained book. This book that has lived down through the centuries, the greatest book ever to come into existence, the Holy Bible. When the original authors, I mean David, Moses, Peter, Paul, so on, when they were writing the Bible, they took their pen in hand, which was a quill pen, no doubt, and they made it out of a reed or a piece of wood and stuck a sharp point on it. They had metal points even way back before Christ on those pens. They would dip it in a little ink well, a little container of ink. They didn't have paper as we have paper. They had animal skins scraped very, very, very thin with a piece of flint. And so the animal skin is so very, very thin, it's like a piece of paper, except it will endure. And there the pen touched the parchment. And they wrote at the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. They wrote the very words that he wanted them to write. They recorded those. We call those original parchment skins the originals. That's what Bible scholars would refer to, the originals. The original document written by the human author as the Holy Spirit spoke to the author. Well, they didn't have printing presses and copy machines. So how do you get the Word of God around because people want copies of it? Most of the New Testament letters were written to churches. So here the Florence Baptist Temple would get its copy written by Paul to us, but 
church over here somewhere else wanted a copy of that, and they didn't have any way to get it, so they copied it by hand. Now, we have been made to think in modern times that the hand copies are not as accurate. Well, first of all, being in a position as a pastor, I can tell you that these, uh, these automatic copies, these digital copies are not always accurate too. About every week or two, you see what that show up in one of the publications here. So just because it's been digitalized or it's on a computer doesn't mean it's accurate, does it? There was a whole class of people called scribes. The scribes were professional copyists. They were schooled in how to copy accurately. And anybody that delves deeply into the subject will find out that their copying was about as accurate as it could be today. And they copied thousands and thousands of copies of the Scripture. We do not have in existence anywhere in the world one of those original parchments on which the original authors of the Bible wrote down the Holy Scriptures. There are no originals. We have copies. Copies going back to within 50 or 60 years of the time that they were originally, that the Scripture was originally given. We have today in the museums and libraries and places where the scholars go who read these and work with them, we have over 6,000 copies of ancient copies, copies dating back to within a few years of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we have 6,000 of those copies. Now listen to me very carefully. This is important. Of those 6,000 copies, when you compare each copy with another copy, here's what you have, 95% agreement. 6,000 copies of the Scripture, over 95% in agreement with each other, which means, of course, that the accuracy of that is incredible. It goes to show how important these, or how accurate these copyists were. 6,000 copies of biblical manuscripts with 95% accuracy. Here's really the importance of that. A few years ago, I preached a whole series of messages on something called the Da Vinci Code. It came out back in the 90s, and I preached a series of messages because an author who is a brilliant intellectual guy named Dan Brown wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. And in it, he sought to destroy the Scripture. There's no doubt about Dan Brown's goal in life. He's since written one on origin, which is an attack on creation. He comes at it, though, from a fictional standpoint. He's making up the story. And he loves to talk about how the Bible is inaccurate, and he tries to point out the inaccuracies. And Dan Brown talks about the Gnostics from years gone by, and Dan Brown, in the, case, in the book, The Da Vinci Code, he makes the case over and over and over and over every few pages that men changed the Bible as we came down through the centuries. And so you can't rely on what the Bible says because the Bible has been changed by men, these Gnostic people. 
The truth is, 6,000 copies from which the scriptures were translated later on, that we now have a translation of the Bible, have 95% agreement. So, beginning with the earliest copies, 95% agreement confirmed by 6,000 different copies linking together. Do you think your Bible is accurate or not? Did men change the Bible? No, we can go all the way back and take the earliest of those manuscripts and show that it's the same thing that our Bible says today. Wow. That's how we got our Bible. And it's so valuable to us. Let me speak to the value of the Bible. Look in Psalm number 19 and verse 10 today in your Bible, and let me show you how precious the Scripture is and why I want you to love it. And I want our church to value it. I want us to evaluate our church in light of Scripture. And in the book of Psalms number 19 and verse number 10, it says regarding the Bible, more to be desired are they, they referring to the Scriptures, more to be desired are they than gold. More to be desired than gold. Man, if I put a sack full of gold coins up here, everybody in here would say, I'd like to have some of that. I checked this week, and gold was worth like 1200 and some dollars an ounce. For one little ounce of gold is $1,200. Pretty valuable stuff, huh? And the Bible says, but the Scripture is more valuable than gold. Value your Bible. Love your Bible. Understand the price that has been paid for you to be able to hold a copy of God's words in your hand today. Well, I've talked about its reliability, but let me talk about that a little bit more. How accurate is the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? We use the word inerrant when we talk about the Bible. I stand here time after time, and I say to you, I believe the Bible is inerrant. Now, sometimes we add another word, infallible, but honestly, you don't need anything after inerrant. If it's inerrant, then you don't need to say it's infallible. That's just being redundant. Inerrant, you see in the middle of the word inerrant, the word err. Inerrant means the Bible cannot err. It cannot have an error in it. If it did, then God lied when he said it was the truth, and he said that over and over and over, and we know that Jesus Christ, we know that God does not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So we believe here in our church, we believe the, the Scripture is inerrant, meaning it's without error. No errors in it. Years ago, 15 years ago or so now, I had the opportunity through an organization we were trying to begin to get acquainted with a man from Houston, Texas. His name was Paul Pressler. Paul Pressler was a, a member of the Texas uh, 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 Appeals Court. He was an appeals court judge, second highest court in Texas. He was also a wonderful Christian and a devout Bible student and Bible believer. Paul Pressler knew as much about the Bible as any man I ever met. And Paul Pressler was at the time, back in the 70s and 80s, where liberalism, doubting the, 
inerrancy of the Scripture was being taught in Southern Baptist colleges and universities and seminaries everywhere across the country. And unbelief was really taking hold in some of those institutions. And Paul Pressler, along with a man named Paige Patterson, who is still the president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, they began what now is called the battle for the Bible among Baptist people. And Judge Pressler was really the leader of that. He had great influence in, uh, in Texas and around the country. And he began to fight for the inerrancy of the Bible. And some of you will remember 15, 16 years ago, I was able to get Judge Pressler to come here, and he preached here on Sunday morning and Sunday night in our pulpit. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful blessing he was. And he spoke about the Bible both times. That's about all I ever heard him speak on. And I said to Judge Pressler one day, give me your simplest, simplest, simplest definition of inerrancy. Because sometimes we talk so much about this stuff, it just gets lost in a world of words. Tell me in one little brief statement, Judge, what do you mean when you say inerrant? Here was his simple definition. Inerrancy means that the Bible is completely accurate in all that it says. Boy, I like that definition. The Bible is completely accurate, fully accurate. He emphasized the completeness of the accuracy. The Bible is completely accurate in all that it says. And I know the skeptics beat it. I know the professors go after it. I know that even preachers today across the country are critical of the Bible. I know about the Jesus seminar. I know all that stuff, but I believe from the bottom of my foot to the top of my balding head, I believe that every word of God's Word is accurate and trustworthy today. <clears throat> would Jesus tell the truth? Do you believe that Jesus would lie? Does anybody here think Jesus would speak a lie or be unreliable in what he says? Listen to what Jesus said about your Bible. John 10, 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. It's impossible for Scripture to be broken. That's Judge Pressler's definition, completely accurate, fully accurate in all that it says. Would Jesus lie? John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Doesn't contain truth. It is truth. Would Jesus lie? Matthew 24 and 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. You can count on it. God's word will not pass off the scene. It will be here no matter what. And what is the evidence of the Bible's reliability? Is there real evidence that you can intellectually stand and debate with that unbelieving college professor? You, when you see something in a movie or on television 
or you hear a friend talking or you read something in a book and you say, wait a minute, they're attacking the Word of God. What do I have intellectually that I can come back against that with and defend God's Word? And by the way, it, it is to be defended, the book of Titus says, that we're to contend for it, meaning we are to be on the offense. We're to fight for the Word of God. Well, let me give you, first of all, the external evidence, evidence outside the Bible itself. One is history. The external evidence, first of all, is history. The Bible addresses hundreds of different people and events and talks about all kinds of different places and so on, and they're all foreign to us. And through the years, as people have studied ancient history, over and over and over, it's been affirmed that what the Bible said about that place or that person or that event in ancient history, that it in fact happened, and it happened as the Bible said it happened. So there's historical accuracy in your Bible. Secondly, there is archaeology. The external evidences, the evidences outside the Bible that affirm that the Bible is in fact true, archaeology. I read recently, the spade of the archaeologist has been the Bible's best friend. The spade of the archaeologist has been the Bible's best friend, meaning that the archaeologist goes over, sticks his spade in the ground in the Holy Lands. He digs. He goes down to one of those archaeological digs. He finds little pieces of pottery. He finds some of those ancient parchments that's been preserved miraculously, it seems. He sees implements that people used that have remained through the centuries. They dig down many feet in the dry soil on the planet over there in some places. And they find these things, and all of them confirm that the Bible was speaking about those things, and the Bible was accurate, very, very accurate, exclusively accurate. And the third external evidence of the power of the, of the, of the power of God's Word is his power to change people in societies. I don't have time to go into this. This is a series in itself. But the reality is that in the nations and countries where the Bible has been honored, there's a difference in the people. There is a higher form of civilization. People think differently and act differently where the Bible is honored and where the Bible is respected, where the Bible is read, and where the Bible is loved. Because when we respect the Bible, we have to live by the precepts of the Bible, and when we do so, we treat each other different, and we treat so many different things. For example, the Bible teaches a strong work ethic. And the Bible teaches against laziness. It condemns laziness as a sin, in fact. And so where you find the Bible honored, you find people who believe in work. Work is not a drudgery. Dr work is a privilege. It's my identity in my life. And it's, there's pride and craftsmanship because my, my work represents me. And you find a whole different attitude toward work than you do in pagan societies where work is dishonored and, and people on the, on, the, on the whole are very lazy. 
But not only are there external evidences of the truth of the Bible, there are internal evidences. And one of them is the unity of the Bible, written by 40 men over 1,500 years. And yet there's one God. It speaks of one God. One plan of salvation by all 40 people. One source of redemption. W.A. Criswell had a famous sermon. He started in Genesis 3, and he preached the blood, the, the, the red cord, the crimson cord going through the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation. You see a consistent emphasis on redemption by blood, by, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Adrian Rogers said, the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus. The Bible has one hero, Jesus. It has one villain, Satan. It addresses one problem, sin. And it offers one solution, salvation through Jesus Christ. And lastly, the Bible, the internal evidence of prophecy. You have one-fourth of the Bible, 25% or so, that predicted the future prophecies. Of those prophecies in the Bible, hundreds of them, 75% of them have already been fulfilled. So we can look at those prophecies, prophecies about Jesus, where he would be born, how he would die, prophecies like the nation of Israel being regathered and coming back to the Holy Lands, and hundreds more that I don't have time to describe for you this morning. Fulfilled prophecy is an internal, within the Bible, evidence of the truth of the Bible. So I have a challenge for you today. I've just stood here and tried to honor God's Word for a while. Go back to Revelation 1 and 3. Blessed is he that readeth and heareth and keepeth the words of this prophecy. And again in Revelation 22, 7, the promise of blessings. I challenge you today, church, Christian, if the Bible really is the revelation of God to man, what do you have more important to do every day than to open this up and spend some time with the Lord? Through the years, I've said, begin the day with the Bible in your lap and your knees bound at the throne of grace. And many of you are doing that. Hundreds of you did. Wednesday night, I had the people stand who had read the Bible through in the past year. And it was amazing. Probably we had 100, 150 people stand on a Wednesday night that had read the Bible all the way through this past year. I'm challenging all of you. First of all, I challenge you to read it every day. You're the slowest reader in the church. You really do struggle with reading. And I understand that then you could read the New Testament this year. And it would take you just a few moments of your time. Most of you, though, can read at a pretty good rate. And do you know what you could do? You could read the Bible through with 15 minutes a day. Do you know what percentage of your time 15 minutes is? It's 196th. Would I give 196th of my life and my time? 196th slice of my life to know God. That's all it would take. 15 minutes 
If you can't get up and do it the first thing, then do it last thing or do it at some point. Two, read it systematically. Read it systematically. Get you a plan. When I didn't use a plan, it was easy to skip a day. But when I have to check that off, it makes me feel bad when I miss it. There's a little motivation built into having a plan. Don't just open up your Bible and pick a verse and say, I'm going to read there today. You'll never grow doing that. Read it systematically. Read it a book at a time, at least, systematically, whether a few verses or several chapters. And hear it at every opportunity, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. One last verse, 2 Timothy 3 and 16 in your Bible. You want to open it to that right quick? 2 Timothy 3, 16. Paul said to Timothy, The Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith. Is there anybody in here today that's not saved? Do you know how to be saved? The Scriptures can make you wise to salvation. You and I would know nothing about salvation if we didn't have God's Word, the Bible. How do, I, how do you get saved? The Bible tells you. How do you know you're saved? The Bible tells you. There is no salvation without the Bible. The Scriptures will make you wise to salvation through faith. And the more you read it and the more you hear it, the more you will have faith. In 1963, they took the Mona Lisa out of the Louvre in Paris, and they brought her, her being the lady's picture, they brought the Mona Lisa to New York City on a plane, if you could believe. Now, a sister painting to the Mona Lisa sold about a month ago for $450 million. How valuable, how valuable would be the Mona Lisa? Nobody knows. Probably over a billion dollars for one painting by Leonardo da Vinci. They brought the Mona Lisa to America, and they did a tour of American cities. And they would go to an art gallery put the Mona Lisa on the wall, and then they had a contingent, a guard of U.S. Marines, if you can believe it or not, who stood guard around that portrait because it was so valuable. So a newspaper reporter asked the head of the Marine force guarding Mona Lisa, what was the most often heard statement you heard when people viewed Mona Lisa. And the guy said, people would come into the gallery. They would look up at the picture. And he said, what they said astounded me. And I heard it over and over. And the reporter said, well, what did they say? They said, hmm, that's the Mona Lisa. I don't see anything so special about that. And the reporter went on to say, when you stand and look at the Mona Lisa, she's not on trial, you are. When a fellow says that, he is 
telling the world of his ignorance. I don't see anything so special about that painting. And we stand and look at God's Word, and many are the critics and skeptics. I don't see anything so special about that book. I say to you, when you view the Bible, the Bible's not on trial. The Bible has been tested and found to be true. You're the one that's on trial. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.